Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to Daniel. Happy birthday to you. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shim. I'm a sexaholic, and I am giving an introduction to today's best speaker recording in honor of our fearless administrator, Daniel T. He has no idea that I'm doing this, by the way. Um, and although we are friends, as soon as he hears this, <laughs> that might be the end of our friendship because this is not his, uh, his way to be celebrated, especially that he doesn't know I'm about to do this. But um, for those of you who don't know, this week, Daniel celebrated five years of sexual sobriety in Sexaholics Anonymous. And I got to tell you, five years. When I came to SA, no one in my group had five years of sobriety. No one. And I was in group therapy with a guy from AA who got five years of sobriety. And we made a party. We couldn't believe it that we were in the same group as someone who had five years of sobriety. It was beyond imaginable. And not just to celebrate with Daniel for his milestone, but to to celebrate with someone who helped keep Sexaholics Anonymous afloat during the pandemic. I mean, meetings have gone under. People have disappeared from the program. And thanks to the fearless, tire, tireless efforts, um, courageous efforts of Daniel T., teaching people how to run Zoom meetings, teaching people how to be admins, teaching people how to set up online uh, recovery. And that's just the worldwide. On his local level, he's been doing this for years, for the last five years. I accidentally ran into Daniel and then got to know him a little better a couple of years ago, maybe 2018, when he started the SIM conference. And I know that before the SIM conference, there was the geeks, the the... Uh, the Geek Camp Squad of uh, that that preceded that, the Geek Squad, but that would have fizzled out like a lot of other things. We all know that uh, the SA inter- the Internet Marathon is his baby. Uh, sitting on that Zoom line with that blue background that we all have come to know if we've seen him on Zoom long before any of us knew what Zoom was. I remember at the first sim that I spoke at, when Daniel helped teach me what Zoom was, I asked him very innocently, what's wrong with, what's wrong with Skype? Because anyone who had been doing uh, recovery online, it was all Skype. And he laughed. He's like, Skype is old-fashioned. 
The new thing is Zoom. Like, what are you talking about? What's Zoom? Nobody heard of Zoom. And here we are. Zoom is the thing. So he's definitely ahead of his time. Works a fantastic program. Is active in recovery, like the big book says. Put the effort into your recovery that you put into your addiction and you will be successful. And Daniel is proof of that. Proof of that. He loves sexaholics. He loves Sexaholics Anonymous. And Daniel, to you, I'm grateful for our friendship. I'm grateful on behalf of Sexaholics Anonymous for your service and happy birthday. So today's recording is actually step one, which is the talk that Daniel gave um, at the SIM just uh, just a couple weeks ago at the SIM 2021, which I am grateful to have been on the line when he spoke. And uh, not all of you were able to get on because of the time zones, but the pearls of wisdom coming out of this man's mouth. I'm listening and I feel like I'm talking to, I'm, I'm listening to someone with 20 years of sexual sobriety. That's how amazing this talk was. So I want to share this talk um, as a happy birthday to you, Daniel. And on, uh, like I said, on behalf of the fellowship, um, congratulations. And without any further introduction, I bring to you step one from our own Daniel T. Enjoy. Thanks so much, Bill. Um, well, I was going to open with a, a made-up prayer of my choice to, for God to give me the tolerance and patience to deal with the ice cream truck outside that's making loud noise, but um, now it's just the noise of his engine, and I don't think you guys are hearing that being picked up from the, uh, from the microphone. I think that we managed to pull off him stopping that loud noise just as I, as I unmuted myself. So um, we'll just start with a general serenity prayer. With uh, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Um, and Bill, I can't change the fact that I'm a sexaholic. Um, I think that is the core of my first step, is the absolute admission within my innermost self that I'm a sexaholic of the hopeless variety. Um, I can't control and enjoy it. I definitely tried for many, many years, uh, as much as I could, uh, to, well, to control it um, and to enjoy it. Um, and I failed miserably over and over and over again. Um, the failure didn't necessarily happen at the moment of orgasm, sorry to be explicit, um, but it definitely felt like a failure afterwards. Um, I ended up abusing my wife for many years. I ended up um, abusing myself, abusing everyone around me. Women were objects. All women were objects. Um, didn't make a difference if it was pornography or on the street. And part of my first step was actually internalizing some of those craziest moments. I have a few really powerful sexaholic moments uh, in my memory bank that I can pull at within moments to immediately remind myself how insane I was, uh, how crazy life was. Um, and those are really important reminders. For me today, um, the core admission 
is that lust, as I understand lust, for me, what lust is for me, is poison. Um, I don't define lust for anyone else. For me, I know what it is for me. I know I have, uh, an, I, I have a sensitivity with most aspects of my lust. I say most because it's cunning, baffling, and powerful, and it constantly shows itself in different ways. Uh, but with most aspects of lust, to know um, that I need to stay away from that, um, and it's an automatic reaction, as if from a hot flame. That is the miracle today. Um, I automatically um, look to the side of the screen when there's something I shouldn't look at. Um, same thing in the street. So that is a very big miracle that I'm able to do that. And it's something that I have to continue to build. It's not something that just takes for granted, because if I take it for granted, I'll be back out there again within a few minutes. Um, so there's no taking it for granted. But what we're going to do today is just talk a little bit uh, in a bigger picture about the first step and understand for ourselves, uh, for everyone here, um, the basics around the first step. So there's a few concepts that the big book spends three and a half chapters discussing the first step around the first step. And I just want to go through them all. It's a recap for me. It's a meditational recap. It brings me back to my first step and it brings me back to clarity. For me, I learned um, that Dr. Bob was a hopeless alcoholic and he knew uh, that it was a spiritual disease. What he did not know was that it was an illness. And when he found out that it was an illness, uh, he then had the missing piece for him to then go and recover. Um, what that tells me, what that taught me, and it's not an original idea, is that knowledge of the problem uh, is, uh, is, a, is, is a route to getting to the solution. If I don't know what my problem is, I won't be able to get to the solution. So it's very important to know what my problem is. So I'm powerless over lusts. It makes my life unmanageable and my life. My life has become unmanageable. Um, those are the first two um, main words of the first step, the powerlessness and the unmanageability. And then the doctor comes in and he tells us that um, I have a physical craving and I have a obsession of the mind. In addition, we have two other concepts that are brought down by the doctor and by the big book in the first few chapters. Those concepts are the allergy. We have an allergy to lust. And uh, we are insane, which is really brought down by the second step because God, for God to restore us to sanity, we have to accept the fact that to sanity, we have to accept the fact that we are insane. So what I want to do is I just want to walk through these six core cool concepts again. As I said, for me, it's a meditation to remind myself uh, how the first step works. Um, and this can be applied to every different fellowship. Um, I personally qualify for many fellowships. Um, it can be applied to different forms of lust. Um, I always like to see lust as, um, you know, in, in narcotics programs. So uh, you have many different narcotics. You stay away from all of them. So it's the same with lust, you know. Um, Masturbation gives me a different type of hit than pornography, which gives me a different type of hit than um, 
prostitutes or whatever it is. Uh, each one is different. And for, we each have our own makeup of what the drugs do to us at different times. But what we'll do is we'll just uh, go through the, the, the core concepts to begin with. So um, let's begin with powerlessness. Um, uh, to accept powerlessness means that there is no power. Oh, so, okay, to begin with, powerlessness is very misunderstood in many ways. Uh, it's misunderstood because uh, it, people take it to mean that I have no I, I, that 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 I have no possibility to not lust, and I'm always going to lust, and I'm powerless to always lust. And that's not exactly what powerless really means at the core of it. What powerless really means is that when I do lust, I'm powerless to stop it. When I start lusting, so the, the, this concept of the first drink, and we'll talk about it a little bit. This concept of the first drink means that when I take the first drink, I have no power to not take a second drink um, or a third drink. Now, that doesn't mean that every single time I take one sip, again, people get very confused by this, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden I am now going to have a binge. The fact is that I have no power over when it's going to be a binge. It might, it might not. And when it is, I won't be able to stop it. And I have no proof that I'll ever be able to stop it. I had a binge that lasted around 15 years. I came into SA at the age of 25, 24, 25, and then came back in at the age of 40. So I had a 15-year binge. I was one of the lucky ones. Some people, they may never come back. So the real basic concept of powerlessness is that once I get on, it, it, it's the, con, it, the, the two the two ways that I like to look at it, the two examples, the analogies are the train or the elevator. Once I get on the train, I can't stop the train. I have no power to stop the train. The train is stronger than me. So therefore, don't get on the train. The elevator. Once I get on that elevator, I have no way or means to stop and decide which floor it's going to let me off on. It might let me off on a very low floor. It might never let me off. Some of us are very lucky and we got off on a high floor. But the fact is that the elevator, once I'm in there and the door's shut, I have no power to get out of there. So therefore, don't get in the elevator. Okay? So this is the power that I have. What, how do I have, how do I find power to not get on the elevator, to not get on the train? Well, that's not step one. That's steps two to 12. I have to understand the problem. So I'm not going to, hopefully today, from all these talks we're going to hear, we're going to learn about how people gained access to the power to stop doing that. And maybe some questions might come up around it. But the, the core is that as long as I don't take the first drink, as long as I don't, don't take the first lust hit, as long as I continue abstaining from lust, then I have quite a bit of power. God does promise us in the 11th step, um, the power to carry it out, the power to carry out God's will. So we do gain the power back. But ultimately, it's important to just realize and remember that uh, lust was my higher power. The only way that I'm going to gain access to a power greater than lust is if I cleave and seek access to that power greater than lust. And what is that power greater than lust? Well, for me, it's my higher power. For many people, it can be the group. I advise it not to be a doorknob. Um, I advise it shouldn't be a sponsor because the sponsor is going to get you, uh, it's, it's going to end up being a sick relationship. The quicker you get straight through the higher power, the better. 
Okay. But the idea is basically um, any power greater than lost. Uh, it's not me. I don't have access to that personally. I need to access it from, from, from within me, from the deep within me, within me, which is my step two, gain access to the higher power. Um, so unmanageable. Now, unmanageable in the step into action is really described as uh, the consequences. And that's that's fine. That makes a lot of sense. The consequences of my drinking. But the reality is that uh, for me personally, the only real consequences that I had from, from my lust addiction was uh, basically losing access to uh, having a sexual relationship with my wife because she basically said, I'm done, no more. I didn't have that many uh, on the surface. I didn't have that many more uh, consequences. I had two cars in the garage, as the big book says. I had businesses that worked. Things were rolling. Um, I, okay, it's true. I lost my self-respect. I lost my spirituality. I lost my self-honor, my self-worth. Um, but those things didn't really, you know, when I came into recovery, the unmanageability was very difficult to, to grasp a hold of. And then, um, and then it was shown to me that unmanageability can be a much clearer, simpler concept. Uh, because what we're trying to do is create an understanding of something that what we call maximally constrains addicts while not bringing everybody else in the world in. How do we define addiction while not defining everyone in the world? Um, and the unmanageability, as it's discussed, as it was taught to me in this concept, is the fact, the simple fact, that once I am in lust, once my brain is focusing, is needing more lust, once I've surrendered to lust, lust is now managing Daniel. Daniel is no longer in management of himself. And we can all, everybody here, and this is a couple of um, people that are still on the fence, and then you're going to have to go deep down to see if you're the real deal or not. I'm not going to prove it to you. You're going to prove it to yourself. But basically, for all of us, uh, we can all grab hold of that moment when whatever it was, the mouse, the eyes, the legs were no longer controlled by us. Lust was controlling. We had lost manageability in our lives. In other words, agency over our abilities to do anything was removed from us. Lust had agency. And so uh, that's the basic core uh, understanding that I have. Uh, for me, for the first step, is that I had no way and means to stop that train once I got on the train. And the train was running Daniel. The last train was running Daniel. Daniel was not driving the train. Had to give the train over to God. God's in charge. Okay, we can move ahead. Let's accept that in our innermost selves. Great. Step one, move on to step two. Let's look a little bit deeper at the other concepts. So we have the uh, what's called the physical and the mental sickness. There is an old debate in AA around the uh, the disease, whether it's a two-part or a three-part disease. Is it mental and physical, or is it mental, physical, and spiritual? Uh, how it was explained to me is that everybody, to some greater or lesser degree, has an existential spiritual craving for God. It's not just exclusive to us addicts. The difference is that us addicts basically get that God hit from our chosen choice. Of drug, of drug, our drug of choice. Uh, and as bizarre as it sounds, we were able to get 
that drug hit from an orgasm somehow. Well, I mean, Harvey mentions about there's nothing greater in the world than an orgasm. So it kind of makes sense. It's the moment of creation. But, uh, you know, maybe we're the really spiritual ones. But the fact is um, that for us, we get that spirituality through our drug, other people. But everybody has a spiritual disease to a greater or lesser degree. And I just want to remind everyone, please feel free to put any questions and answers in the chat because I'm definitely not going to be speaking for 45 minutes and we're going to want to answer a few questions. So um, the physical and the mental disease are split up basically into the physical craving and the mental obsession. Now, uh, the craving, uh, the doctor, in the doctor's opinion, basically says that the craving is pretty much exclusive to us uh, addicts. In other words, when we get that hit, uh, whatever the hit is, and I'll talk about how I understand that hit in a moment, uh, we, get, um, we get a feeling that we need more. Normal people don't. Normal people, they can lust like a gentleman, as crazy as it sounds, and they don't need another lust hit, and another lust hit, and another lust hit, all right? How I truly understand the, uh, the core of that um, mental craving, of, sorry, of the physical craving, is uh, through an understanding of, uh, of physio physiological hormone, hormones that are created. Uh, in fact, it's that anyone who's had that anticipatory hit before they even went to the porn or on the drive to the prostitute, the buildup of adrenaline that happens in the body that is the craving that is the physical we don't act, we didn't act out we didn't lose our sobriety when we just had the orgasm it happened way before that we lost our sobriety way way before that and the craving itself um it's literally it's a it's a physical reaction an abnormal reaction that we have to those hormones that are created we need more and more of them. And that abnormal reaction, just to soup slightly to the site, is what the doctor explains is the allergy. The allergy is an abnormal reaction to lust. Normal people do not have that allergy. Therefore, they do not react abnormally to it. So that's a very simple overview of the craving. The obsession of the mind is a harder thing to explain. Because what we all think, and I think most of us, again, in this room will relate, we sexaholics have a penchant for being incredibly obsessive. We'll obsess about the craziest things. And actually, really what that is, is part of our codependence, uh, which is really the mother of all addictions. We have this obsession piece where we will obsess and obsess and obsess about the tiniest thing. And in my early sobriety, it was insane how much obsession I went into over the tiniest little things that my wife said to me. I mean, because now I didn't have lust to medicate me, so now I had obsession to medicate me. That, I will argue, is not the obsession that the people is talking about. The obsession, in fact, what we will call that is the preoccupation. When I am spending my day preoccupied with lusting, you can call it obsession if you want to, but it's not the obsession that the big book is discussing. The obsession that the big book is discussing is the obsession that I can control 
and enjoy it. The abnormal obsession of every the obsession of every abnormal drinker is that the drinker is that he can control and enjoy his drinking. So I am uh, I'm obsessed that I could do. It. I'd like to. Uh, I hope I can find this quickly. I uh, I really wanted to read it from from the other day. It was just such a beautiful. Um, I'll, I'll 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 try and find it as I'm as I'm writing as I'm uh, speaking. Let me just see if I can roll up and see if the. There was a, in one of the WhatsApp groups that I'm in, someone left a message the other day asking a question. And I felt like it was just a perfect, perfect explanation of the physical obsession, of the mental obsession. Here we go. Here, here we go. Hello, I have a question. Sometimes I think to myself, I have 30 days of sobriety. Now I have a pressing desire to masturbate. I can afford a relapse. I lasted 30 days. Now I need a small dose of the drug. I can afford a little madness. After the relapse, I get up and I continue the path of recovery. I know it's my disease that's speaking, but how do I stop these thoughts? So one may say that these thoughts are what the big book calls the mental blank spot. It's a very interesting, it's exactly what happens. But basically there's some point in time where we forget the pain and suffering of the day or the week before and we think just a little bit of lust is going to be okay. I'll get up tomorrow. It'll be okay. Nothing's going to happen. I'll restart. Or even more insane is once I'm in a little bit of a cycle of every two, three days of acting out, it's like, oh, what's the point? It's only, I've only got two, three days. What the hell? I might as well have another one. I might as well do it again. And that's how we never get out of it. So what I'm coming to say here is that that is insane. Because based on the record, um, it doesn't stop. I can't control and enjoy it. I feel like crap afterwards. Um, it was just an orgasm and nothing happened. I didn't gain anything. I just lost my feet. I, I lost my feelings. I'm not present. I'm being unfaithful in my brain. Um, I'm not being of service. I'm being selfish. I'm taking. I'm living in all of my character defects at once. Um, and lust is controlling and managing my life. That's the first step. At the end of the day, that is a first step, a first step to realize that I can't control and enjoy it. It's poison for me. If I continue to do it, life is going to become more and more and more crazy because I don't have agency over my actions. I'm not letting God have agency over my actions. I'm letting lust have agency over my actions. And how unmanageable is that? And how miserable am I making myself, making the people around me? And I can't carry on like this. And I recall again those craziest moments of insanity, of the insane things that I did in my disease. I take a deep breath. Try and cleave to my higher power. And move on to the next steps. It's a big deal. Step one is the hardest, in a sense, because... We are in the clutches of a very fatal disease that will lie to us. It will continue to lie to us. It will never stop lying to us. And it's got us by the throat. The liar owns us. And our job is to admit to our innermost selves at the core core of my being that for me it's poison. But other people can do it. doesn't make a difference. For me, it's poison. 
we always look at other people. We always say, but I'm different. Don't you know me? I'm different. No. So at the core of it, that's basically what I wanted to speak about today. I'll have a look at the other notes just to see if there's anything else there. Um, Basically, if I'm cut off from God, when I am cut off from God, when I'm living in my disease, when the defects are running the show, there's going to be a part of me that is yearning for something greater. And my default as a sexaholic is that that's going to lead me straight back to lust. And you have this, basically that's the fuel, the fuel to my relapse, the fuel to my insanity, the fuel to my lust is this being cut off from lust. Um, And the only way to, uh, to fill that gap is to have a spiritual experience. The only way I know how to do that is to take the steps. Um, Lust will fill me up, but it won't fill me up on a consistent basis. It'll fill me up in a very stopgap basis and it won't work long enough and I'll keep on needing it. I need something lasting to fill me up with that God drug as, uh, as it's called. So I'm going to leave it around there and I'd love to, um, take on some questions please feel free i saw that someone had raised their hand as well um in the q a uh in, in don't don't raise your hands if you're listening just go ahead and put in a q a into the q a you'll see a q a button at the bottom and um and uh bill i'm happy to ask the questions as well if you want to take a little rest i i'm, I'm a control freak it's one of my uh, other uh, one of my other diseases so i can i can ask an answer if you want I'll let you find the mute button. The first question was, uh, does lust always mean wanting an orgasm or can dependency, et cetera, set the inevitable train rolling? Well, it's a great question. Yes, lust has got nothing to do with the orgasm. Orgasm is just one of the drugs. Um, I have dependency lust. I have relationship lust. I have love lust. I have money lust. I have food lust. I I mean, at the core of it, as Roy explained it, lust is wanting different or better than what I have right now from God, right? So the opposite of lust is basically gratitude and being happy with exactly what God has given me in my life today. And if that's not an orgasm, then thank you, God. Thank you, God, for not giving me an orgasm today. If it was an orgasm, thank you, God, for giving me an orgasm, but I'm being, but, but I'm letting God be the deliverer of my orgasms and not being the controlling uh, masterpiece uh, uh, conductor of when I have an orgasm or not. I did that for nearly 40 years and didn't end up so well. Um, so yeah, lust, lust, I mean, we have to look, like I said at the beginning, we have to look inside ourselves. Uh, and the only way to really do that is to have a stopgap of not lusting to a certain degree to be able to start to have the sensitivity to see what lust is for me. Um, the next question, which is um, related to what the last thing that I said is, what is your experience with resentment? So my experience with resentment is that I can't afford to resent. Um, I'm not a very resentful person. I'm more of a fear-driven person. Um, but resentment is what we're calling the fuel, the fuel to uh, acting out. Resentment causes me to act out. I have to, uh, tra- I have to practice the opposite of resentment. For me, the opposite of resentment is acceptance. Uh, 
That's how it was taught to me by my second sponsor. Uh, uh, accepting, I'm not accepting the person or the thing as being exactly the way they're supposed to be today. Uh, it's also the opposite of an expectation. So I'm not expecting anything from anyone. Um, when I am in resentment, I'm not spiritually fit. And the result is uh, my default, which will be to go to lust. That's my experience with resentment. My real experience was, with resentment was that I had to take a fourth step um, and then I had to take another fourth step and another one. I had to take a few. Um, the next question, any explanation of how I could be sober after my first meeting when I was unable to be sober, regardless of what promises I made to myself and my husband? I'm still working on progressive victory over lust. Um, I think that the core of this answer, because many of us are like, nothing changed. I'm walking into a meeting. Now you expect me magically to stop lusting. Of course, it's not going to happen. But that is really the magic of step zero at the core of getting involved in the fellowship. But I think that the real core answer of this question is what we call the gift of desperation. Um, and I have to grab a hold of the gift of desperation with all of my might. And when I have the gift of desperation, God also gives me a little bit of a gift of clarity. And with that gift of clarity, I take those steps on and I just work those steps before the mental blank spot happens and hopefully time for me to have a spiritual experience, which is why there is a great reason to have um, a quick travail through the steps at the very beginning and then go in deeper and then go in deeper. Because when I have that gift of desperation, I have to grab a hold of it as, as tightly as possible. And it is that through that gift of desperation that I may find myself in a place uh, where I can actually um stay sober for a few days uh just to get past the physical craving because you have to understand that we have this withdrawal we have this physical withdrawal the actual craving i need it i need it i need to have some kind of way of staying sober for a few days just to get out of the brain rush there's an argument should i take the steps at that during that time should i not I'm not going to get into that um obviously i do believe that uh when you're drunk the steps are not going to really do very much um the next question, how do we know if what we are seeing on the inside of ourselves is really different than what we're seeing on the outsides of others? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I think that it depends on where I am spiritually. Um, I always uh, thought that everyone on the outside of me had uh, everything fully worked out and were so organized and knew exactly what they wanted in life. And um and I was just the only person in the world who was lost, a little lost puppy, poor me, you know, with all that self-pity uh, uh, around it as well. Um, I think that the other part to it is that um, honesty is a very difficult thing to claim, especially in early sobriety. It's very hard to truly be honest with myself and to truly gain um gain an honest perspective of myself. And that's why I don't do step five with myself and God. I do step five with a third person, with a sponsor or a mentor, who's going to show and shine the light on the craziness of my insanity for me. Um, to see on the inside of myself takes time. I'm only nearly five years old. That's a baby. It takes spiritual growth. It takes emotional growth. It takes working on myself. It takes others to shine the light on me. If it wasn't for the fellows in my room showing me what a crazy idiot I am um, a lot of the time and what an egomaniac I am, then I'd still, you know, be, you know, and, and as my sponsor always says, if you spot it, you got it. So what I'm seeing on the inside of myself is uh, 
I'm spotting it on myself. I probably got it. <laughs> um, next, physical, emotional, and spiritual. I understand how sexaholism is a disease, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. In what way is sexaholism a physical disease? Especially as the difference between lust and love is not physical in nature. I think you addressed this a little bit. If you could elaborate a little, that would be great. Um, well, I think that the, uh, the, I did mention, of course, the hormones that are excreted. I, uh, I think that uh, the physical nature of the obsession piece, which is what we would call love addiction, which is also a big part in dependency addiction, is actually exactly the same. Um, in some fellowships, they call it the first think instead of the first drink. And the first think also has a chemical reaction in my brain, just obsessing in a love triangle between myself and my brain uh, actually causes a, uh, uh, causes a, a physical reaction in my, um, uh, in my, uh, in my inner being. Um, and that is the physical disease. I'm allergic to that because I have an abnormal reaction to those hormones. Very simple. Uh, it's those hormones. Next, if we craving not for sex, orgasm, or ecstasy from lust, but actually it's a mental craving, how to stop this longing for relationship, for real love, real connection, because that's very human, isn't it? So first of all, I would say that the craving, as I explained, is a craving that is physical. It's not mental. So it could be that you're talking about something else. The craving that we experience, the physical, the, the mental craving is not actually what the big book talks about. It talks about a physical craving. That's the physical part of the disease. So that emotional need for another person, that longing for relationship, for real love, for real connection, that is very human. And that's actually uh, what the work of the steps brings me to, to find that in my higher power. Um, we all have that, I think. To answer that person, I think that not only do we all have it, I think that that is what I would call the lust for God, which is not a negative thing, but we look for it in people and in objects, and we need to look for it in God. Um, we're never going to get it from a partner. My partner, my wife, is, one second. My partner, my wife, is never going to be able to give me uh, what I need ever. Um, and I'll only ever get it from God. And basically, if I drive my dependency towards that, um, I don't know where it'll, I don't know where it'll end. Uh, the next question, how do you keep your first step alive after being sober for some time? Okay. Um, I think that the first step, because I was saying that lust actually, um, it's, it develops over time. In other words, it never goes away. It's, it's very powerful and um, um, it's culling and baffling. So what I have to do is I have to be spiritually aware of, what, of lust for myself. And I have to be aware of when, uh, of, of when it's happening. I think that for me, for example, I had several first step experiences outside of lust, just 
realizing what lust had done to my life. Um, until then, I, I was, um, uh, I, I, it was crazy. Uh, without realizing what it, what it had done to me, um, in, in the first year, I was, um, the mind boggled. But then I slowly, uh, I slowly had a more of a deeper and more profound experience with my first step. I think that the first step grows with us. And at the same time, I think that uh, it's something that I have to really acknowledge at all times. I'm powerless. If I if if I forget that I'm powerless, um, it's not going to end up well. I'm going to end up acting out again. The next question: uh, Why do we keep forgetting step one, particularly when we are relapsed? Great question. Um, so, what you're talking about is the um, is the mental blank spot in this question. Um, I think that basically what the answer is, is as I explained it in my talk, um, is that we're insane. We're completely insane. And it's through, as a result of that insanity, that I think that I can control and enjoy it. Um, and what happens is I am obsessed about that. It's an obsession in my brain that I like another, uh, like anyone else. Um, but particularly when we relapse, it's you, there's no way we're going to remember it. How are we ever going to possibly remember um, that, that that when we when we're constantly in a relapse? It's a very difficult cycle to get out of. It's practically, I mean, you know, the only way to get out of it is to be blessed again with a first step experience with the gift of desperation until we get that blessing. It's, 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 it's impossible. Um, so why do we keep forgetting step one? Well, very simple answer because we're addicts and addicts have a disease of forgetfulness. That's why. Um, and as long as we keep on relapsing, we're going to keep on forgetting it. Um, Bill, would you like to ask the next few questions? You can go through. Yeah, I'll bring them and uh, I'll put them to you here. This okay. is uh, a question. I really liked that you mentioned the illusion of affording a little madness or lust because you've maintained sobriety. How do you move past that through long-term sobriety? That's a good question. I really like that you mentioned the illusion of affording a little madness of lust or lust because you've maintained sobriety. How do you move past that thought during long-term sobriety? I think that the key to long-term sobriety is actually spiritual and emotional growth. Uh, steps two through 12 don't mention lust. They're not about lust. And I think that once you get on the train of recovery, uh, you spend less and less time trying not to lust, trying not to act out, and more and more time focusing on becoming a human being again. Um, and that's what works for me. I have to, um, I have to, for me, like I said at the very beginning, I have to always internalize that it's poison for me and I don't want to die. If I wanted to die, I would take some lust. I hope that kind of answers it. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to take a prerogative to ask you a question, which is um, how, how have you experienced um, the difference between your first step when you were a newcomer 
and and first step either for your long-term sponsees or for yourself in your longer-term sobriety? How has how has step one changed for you over time? Um I think I've had to develop it. I didn't. I don't think that I had a very clear understanding of it at the beginning. And I had basically, I was just running on the gift of desperation. And I think that over time, I gained um, a deeper emphasis. For me, one of my, my in my personal experience, uh, one of the biggest moments of, um, of of a much deeper first step was when I was uh, was when I, after a year, I made a full disclosure to my wife. Uh, and I then saw the consequences of my actions. Um, until that point, I was living in a kind of a bubble. Um, and so for me, all of a sudden, that was a, my real first step experience was actually when I saw how it had affected the person I was closest to, which is really interesting. I think that, um, um, and, and then I bring that experience with me to, to my sponsees. Um, I don't know if that answers the question or not. And and I'd comment also that the unmanageability, I think, because of self-deceit or denial, I still continue to realize how unmanageable my life was that I didn't even recognize because I was in complete self-denial and uh, thought, oh, well, this is normal. So, Absolutely. Uh, the, the whole point of unmanageability is that um, we need to let God manage our lives. And only once we let, once we start to move into that sphere of letting God manage our lives on a day-to-day basis, do we mm-hmm. start to have more clarity on the unmanageability as it was in the past. I think that that's the magic of the steps. Mm-hmm. We have a question. The white book says when we surrender our freedom, we become truly free. I experience this as giving up control or more to the point, the illusion of control sets me free. Seems to me that for me as an addict, there are two choices. Give my higher power control, surrender, or let lust maintain control. I have no power where lust is concerned. And uh, this uh, participant asked, does that make sense? How have you experienced freedom that the white book talks about? So, yeah, it makes absolute sense. And the funny thing is that most spiritual paradoxes make perfect sense in the heart and in the soul. And they don't make sense if you try and mathematically work them out. One of our problems in uh, in addiction is that we're too smart for our own addict. We, we, our addict basically is running the show. And he's, he's so freaking smart that we think we know everything. That was my experience. Um, and, of course, the illusion of control is so important and so powerful and such an, it's such a need. And um, uh um yes the, the the key the real key is to get let let god let god have control surrender that control to my higher power or lust is going to have control and sandy b talks a lot about this um he talks a lot about these two choices it's in, it's in step two we had we uh we uh, either die uh, a sexaholic death or live a spiritual life right and the joke that Sandy B says is, well, then we come along and we say, well, how bad is that spirit? Is that sexaholic death really going to be? You know, we're insane. A normal person will say spiritual life, death of misery. Um, obviously, I'm going to take the spiritual life, right? Um, 
And for me, I think that the freedom you can't really, I can't really express the freedom because it exists within a spiritual paradox. I can experience the freedom from lust. It's hard to express it. Yeah. I can remember the very first time uh, I walked out of a meeting and I, w- I, I looked up at, I was in Chicago, the, the train was going by on the elevated track. And I said, you know, we will, we will experience a new freedom and a new happiness. And the promises started coming true. And it is hard to explain that, but boy, it, uh, it's like a weight falling off of, or coming up off the shoulder so it's a real blessing. Uh, what is your experience of working step one with sponsees? How do you share your experience, strength, and hope to give a sponsee the understanding of powerlessness and unmanageability? That's, I think, um, sponsee so I basically do, I basically do um, what I did here in this talk at the beginning. I basically <laughs> talk about the powerlessness and the unmanageability and how it relates to me. Um, and how I experienced it. I'll, I'll, I'll give over a few examples, um, mm-hmm. uh, more explicit ex- examples, because it's one-on-one, um, talking about um, how, um, how like, just like I did here, just how, how it's in management, you know, once, once, once the hand, the, once the mouse is being moved by itself, Daniel's no longer moving the mouse, right? And I can't control when Daniel's going to turn off the computer. It's as simple as that. And most people, who are in this fellowship relate. So it's, uh, you know, that's, that's how I do it. And, and, and I, I try and help people. And then there's different ways of working step one. I try and get people to write their step one. Um, and that's it. Uh, there's a great question here above that. What exactly does progressive victory over lust mean? I think that, mm-hmm. um, I think that lust, the whole, the whole concept of lust ultimately is that I'll never actually gain complete victory over it. Um, and it's all about seeing those, um, moments in my life that are um, that are actually coming from lust, and I'll always, you know, I had I had an epiphany the other day. Uh, same thing; it, it's constantly happening. Well, wow, that's lust. Um, and then you and and and, and then you take uh, you take measures to surrender it. Um, and it doesn't always have to be sexual lust. I think that uh, when I, you know, it's very important, in, especially in early sobriety, to to identify really what lust is for me and to get rid of those hidden bottles and to abstain from as much as possible from it. Um, But I don't think we'll ever have complete freedom from it. And that's why I pray for freedom from it Um, uh, because it evolves. Next one is uh, when my state of mind is that the first drink isn't so bad, are we already drunk? How to go back after that? So I don't think that it happens that the first drink isn't so bad. I think the, 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 the drunk moment happens at that exact minuscule moment in my brain when I relent, when I surrender that I'm going to act out. And it's a very tight, it's very hard to get in touch with that tiny moment in my brain when I say I'm going to do it. But that's when the moment of drunkenness happens until that moment of drunkenness happens. It hasn't happened yet. Um, how to go back after I've had a thought that it isn't so bad. Well, I haven't, I don't have to go back. I, I believe that we can just, uh, respond to that voice yes it is i you know i don't have to be controlled by my thoughts yes actually it is pretty bad that is not something that's going to work let's look at the record um 
In the moment of temptation, how do you remind your insane mind of your insanity? Well, I think that one has to, uh, I think that a lot of people talk about the moment of temptation. We have to be grateful for it. Thank you, God, for reminding me that I'm a sexaholic. Thank you, God, for reminding me that I'm a sexaholic. Um, Thank you, God, for reminding me that I'm insane. If you're having trouble for remembering that, then just go and repeat yourself. I'm insane. I'm insane. I'm insane for a hundred times for a day for a few days. Um, you know, I'm powerless. I'm powerless. I'm powerless. Uh, what was it your first experience more of an enlightened self-interest as described in the white book or pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization as described in the AA big book? Mine is more of the later than the former. I think that it's both of them. I think, you know, I, I don't think that we have a monopoly, that anyone has a monopoly on that gift of desperation. I think it can come from enlightened self-interest or it can come for the wrong reasons or it can come uh, from an imp- incomprehensibly demoralizing situation. I have, it's those inc- incomprehensible demoralization moments that are the ones that I have in my memory bank that are the core step one experiences. That's very important to remember. Um, how do I find a real connection, a real loving God and not in human socially? Um, well, I can't. That's why Jesse called people God with skin. I need my fellows and I need the relationship with God. I just need to have my priorities right. I'm not going to get what I need from humans. They're never going to give me what I really need, which is that God drug. I'm only going to get that from God. Uh, But it's through my fellow humans, especially ones that are ahead of me on the path, um, that I will be guided towards my higher power. Next one. In my sobriety, I've been focusing on surrendering all of the visceral and emotional experiences that I feel related to lust in any form, as well as redirecting my thoughts and eyes towards experiencing what is rather than fantasy. The brain chemistry experience itself is what I'm trying to avoid triggering or entertaining. That's great. I also find my emotions keyed into these experiences and driving me into states of insanity. How do you grow your appreciation for sanity? Um, <laughs> Well, I think one of the things I'll mention about this is, is, is that I, I had to learn, and I always say this, I had to learn how to, how to see and not look. And I think that that's what you're describing here in the question um, about slowly um, having, a, having an experience of lucidity, that I'm seeing a human being and I'm not looking to see what I can take from a human being. Um, I also find my emotions keyed into these experiences and drive me to states of insanity. I think, you know, as obsessive people, we could obsess about sobriety as well. I think that we have to also lighten up uh, on ourselves. But I think there's a very big difference between early sobriety and later sobriety. Is there anything we can do to help others find their first steps or is that entirely out of our hands when talking to newcomers, for example? I think that not with, our experience helps others find their first step by sharing from my own experience, but I can't bring, I I, I can't make someone experience their own first step. Um, It's an experiential thing that they're going to have as a result of their own gift of desperation. I don't think that I can bring anyone to it directly, but the, 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 the experience of sharing my lust with others um, to help them to relate uh, is one of the, the key, um, the key things that Bill basically found out on day one and that he brought to AA was being able to share the experience of one alcoholic with another alcoholic. 
last two questions. We're going to finish up. What are some of the things that we can do when we feel the obsession to start the last cycle and act out? Um, well, get on our knees, pray, pick up the phone, pick up a book of spiritual reading, um, um, surrender, practice surrender, practice it again, um, go deeper into what's, uh, it, it, it's not the obsession. It's, it, it, when it is the obsession, it's, it's, it's the mental blank spot, right? So go and work steps. That's always a great thing to do. Go and work steps. Just work those steps. Um, and um, the certain readings in the big book that are really important and can help. Um, and finally, do you agree with the saying that only service to God and others could save us from this destructive material energy, so we have to take shelter of God-conscious people and serve them? Well, no, I believe that we should serve non-God-conscious people as well. I think that uh, the, the, the key is that service to God gets me out of myself. Service to others get me out of myself. My problem is me. I am my biggest problem, right? I'm recovering from the bondage of me. And the only way to get out and over that is to be of service to others, which gets me out of my brain. Um, so that's all the questions that I pushed through. And thank you very much, everyone, for all the, all the answers. And um, if it's okay with you, Bill, before we finish, I'll, I'll end with the third step prayer. Awesome. God, I offer myself to you to build with me and to do with me as you will. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do your will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them will bear witness to those I would help of your power, your love, and your way of life. May I do your will always. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.